I'm getting ripped tonight. R.I.P. That maze the name. Crazy is the game. <laughs> ASMR on the cider. Focus on the cider. ASMR on it. <laughs> I need to be institutionalized. Listen. Let me tell you a couple of things, okay? Hi, welcome. <laughs> this is by all means necessary. The camera angle. We gotta switch it up. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> I have reviewed that because I have trust issues in this microphone and I have just seen that my scalp is like red from the sun. There's like 30 degrees here in London. Okay, 22 now. I'm lying <laughs> severely by 7 degrees. But yeah, if you see like my scalp kind of fading away into the hair, it's not dandruff. It's <laughs> just my scalp peeling off. Wow, charming. This is by all means necessary. I think I said that. <laughs> you and your drunk white ass. This is a true crime podcast. It's lighthearted. We start off by me telling you an expression each week, and then we dive into the most depressing of the cases ever. And because I'm about to start sweating, let's just dive straight into it. It is the last case of the month on the theme of political crime, and today might be the biggest cunt today. That's how they're usually themed. They start off small and then they build up to like a famous case for the end of the month. And then the last week of the month, I go rogue. A lot of people would argue that the biggest cunt was North Korea from last week and Otto Warmbier's case. Yeah, but that's okay, individual. Individual biggest cunt. That's who we are talking about this week. That was like, you know, biggest cunt as a nation. <laughs> Cider's really kicking into you. All right. Okay, today I'm so excited about the expression of the day. Mostly because I am a child. But the expression is taste of your own medicine. What does it mean if you give somebody the taste of their own medicine? It means doing the same bad thing that they have done to you. So keeping it in proportions, but basically having a fuck you moment on them. Shit all over their parade, but shit in the same amount that they have shit on yours. All right. <laughs> But did you know, this is the part that excites me way, way too much for somebody who is like a grown-ass person having sexual intercourse. All right. Uh, so, <laughs> next part. Did you know that this expression derives from a fable by Aesop? Is that how you pronounce it? Pretty sure. Yeah, Aesop, you know. Not the soap company that's based in London, but the Greek fabulist storyteller dude. So, I'm about to put on my fable reading voice for you, because you have to experience this, right? The fable that the expression originates from is the cobbler turned doctor. A cobbler unable to make a living by his trade and made desperate by poverty began to practice medicine in a town in which he was not known. He sold the drug pretending it was an antidote to all poisons and obtained a great name for himself by long-winded puffs and advertisements. When the cobbler happened to fall sick himself of a serious illness, the governor of the town determined to test his skill. For this purpose, he called for a cup and while filling it with water, pretended to mix poison with the cobbler's antidote, commanding him to drink it on the promise of a reward. The cobbler, under the fear of death, confessed that he had no knowledge of medicine and was only made famous by the stupid clamors of the crowd. 
The governor then called the public assembly and addressed the citizens. Of what folly have you been guilty? You have not hesitated to entrust your heads to a man whom no one could employ to make even the shoes for their feet. <laughs> a tad dramatic there in the end, but you get it. It's kind of like the boy that called wolf. No, that's not that story. <laughs> You're mixing up the fables in your head. No, the one with the bee, the liar that said like the bee is over his head. <laughs> that is the boy that cried wolf, right? Because he cried wolf. Please, no, continue. Till the end, Maya, till the end. He cried wolf. Because he had honey and then bees would appear above his head. But what is the point? Why were the bees why were the bees above his head? And then the bees attacked him once he actually called for help. Okay, uh-huh. Yeah, let's mix all of them up. The moral of this story is that the cobbler lied. And then he was exposed and he got the taste of his own medicine because he pretended to be a doctor. You got it. You got the moral of the story. And that's where the origin of it comes from. The next slide that I have written in this script is, if you want the taste of my own medicine, what is my medicine, you man? What is my medicine, you might ask? Sweetness and craziness and very uncalm tits. Okay, sweetness. I was drunk writing this, though. Uncalm tits, definitely. These tits have not seen calm days since Christ, since the Aesop days, since 600 BC. Then the next line, because this is how I thought this conversation will go, says, do you want them to think of your tits or of the social media? Because this was the social media corner where I tell you to follow me on that BAM pod across all platforms or to just write me the snail mail to podbam at gmail.com. And this is how I chose to do it. Yes. I have no regrets. Also, follow the YouTube channel for the visuals, if not for seeing my face profusely sweat during the summer, which also might be a bonus point for some people. There are weird fetishes out there, alright? We spoke about the show Fetish Slayer. They're weird fetish. The people like to watch people sweat. <laughs> Probably very niche. Very niche of a fetish, but sure, Maya, yeah, let's trust you on that, I guess. Weirdo. <sighs> okay, now that you got that out of the system, let's dive into the case of the day. On 16th of June 2016, a British politician was killed by a white supremacist, Thomas Marr. For years, he has hidden his affinity towards Nazi ideologies by all means necessary, but they were about to be showcased to the public. This is the story of Joe Cox. car with Joe Cox was approaching the library in Birstall. This is the city in West Yorkshire. It's not Bristol. I genuinely thought like it was for half of the research of this article. It's not. As the car that Joe Cox was driven in is arriving at the Birstall library, a man is circling around it. He has a baseball cap on and a Tesco career bag. We're only on the first line. I believe in you. It's a carrier bag. Why did it autocorrect? Why did you not spot it, though? That is the bigger question. 
career bag. What would a Tesco career bag have in it? A snack of Tesco's finest hummus and carrots on the side, a meal deal, <laughs> just to get you going into your Tesco career. Just watch for that Apple review being like, this podcast has gone downhill. Has it ever been uphill? That is the real question. Has it ever been uphill? It can't go downhill if it has not reached the up. Uh, continue the sentence. Push for it. If it has not reached the ups. If it has not reached the upper of the hills. Yeah, logic. Science. Back from the sideline to the story. As soon as Joe got out of the car, Thomas Mars struck her. He first shot her in the head, but as she kind of raised her arm to protect herself, it didn't have as much of an impact, so she falls onto the ground, and this is when he drags her in between the cars and starts stabbing her violently. This is now witnessed by a guy called Hichembed Abdallah, who runs this coffee shop nearby, so as soon as he witnessed this attack, he runs into the cafe to ring the police. Another person witnessing the attack was a 77-year-old miner, Bernard Kenny. He was in the area waiting for his wife to come out of one of the shops when he witnessed Mars starting to stab Joe. So he goes to try to pull him off her and this is when he gets stabbed by Mar himself. As Thomas is stabbing Joe, he is shouting, Britain first, keep Britain independent, Britain will always come first, this is for Britain. And with a 15th stab to her body and one other shot... Joe's last words were, don't let him hurt you, let him hurt me, followed by my pain is too much. Pay attention really in this story to the actions that both of these parties have done because they say so much about the people who Joe Cox and Thomas Marr were. Once he assures that Joe will definitely succumb to her wounds and die, Thomas Marr just slowly walks away. As the ambulance makes it to the scene, they try to save her life. Bernard's injuries were only superficial, so they patch him up and also try to transport them to the emergency services. He's got a black baseball cap. It's like a black baseball He's got the black carrier bag in his right hand. He's got a grey shirt on. He's walking up Brown Hill Road. You get a police car at the top of there, and at the bottom you'll catch him. And as for Thomas, the police tackled him down straight away and he didn't go far from the scene of the crime at all. And as they tackled him to the ground, he screamed that he was a political activist. Meanwhile, Joe Cox, who was the member of the parliament that supported the Remain side during the EU Brexit campaign and who was about to hold a constituency surgery in the library after she just visited a school in the area and a care home prior to her arriving at the library, was now clinging on her life. But when she reached the hospital, they pronounced her dead. She left two children behind, one aged five and the other one aged three. As soon as the police makes the arrest, they ensure to send somebody to his house to see if he has any accomplices, if they need to inform anybody, and just in general to see, well, did this man plan to commit any other crimes? Like, are there any further weapons on his property? Is there a bomb somewhere? Is there anything to indicate what he might have been up to? And they don't necessarily discover any, like, further ammunition or anything of that sort, but 
truly just try to for a second pause this podcast and picture what his house would look like because I bet it will live up to those expectations. Just at the first view, they go into the house and it kind of doesn't look like a man lives there. I know that sounds weird, but basically he inherited this house after his grandma died. He used to live with her and then after she died, he just left it decorated in the exact same way. So, you know, kind of like how you would go visit your grandma, it would be like all peachy colors or pinkish, you know, China in different places. He didn't change up any of that, but it was noticeable as soon as the police walked in that he was probably OCD. So even though he didn't change up much, the kitchen cupboards, tin food, everything was arranged in precise rows, with each label pointing in the exact same direction. And really, at first, as a police officer, you're probably thinking, like, am I at the right location? Does he actually live here? That is until you would reach the bookshelves. The first thing that they see, because it's just huge, is this eagle on the top of his bookshelf. And it's not just any eagle, it's a Third Reich eagle with a swastika on the front. And on the bookshelves, he had, like, the ordinary stuff. You know, Mein Kampf, like Hitler's autobiography, like different books on Nazis, on German military history and white supremacy. But then he also had those really rare and expensive books, like the books that you and I probably would have never heard of, such as SS race theory, mate selection guidelines, uniforms and traditions of the Luftwaffe Volume 2. So we probably had Volume 1, Volume 2, however many volumes of these traditions were there, he had, he had all of them. As if the books weren't giving them the enough of an idea, they found these press cuttings that he carefully cut out of the newspapers, and the press cuttings were on the coverage of Norwegian mass killer Anders Breivik. He also had a full dossier on Joe Cox and her career, Nazi badges, and a ton of just far-right supremacist magazines. So the police officers are there like, okay, it is very clear that he has not seen the insides of a vagina for quite some time, at least. But also what seems clear to us is that this was an isolated attack. Like, there were no accomplices. This man clearly targeted Joe and just chose this day to conduct his attack. Just to ensure to eliminate that option, they have also looked into Joe's political career. Because, of course, as a politician, especially during this heated time when Brexit referendum was just about to happen, she was probably to have received some hate mail. And they find two such threats from her past. One was apparently of a sexual nature, and the other one was just malicious communication. This man was detained and released with a warning. So Joe didn't press like any further charges upon those two threats. And they also managed to eliminate that none of these men were involved in the attack. For the police, this was one of those clear-cut cases where they didn't really have to look far to find a motive. Because they just knew from the feel that they had at his house that Brexit definitely played a large influence on this man. This attack took place only a week before the referendum. So let me just give you a crash course on what Brexit was all about. 
if you live in the US, where kind of most of my listeners live in. So, hey, Brexit, it is Britain's exit, right? You might be familiar with Megxit. Well, let's just say Brexit had to walk for Megxit to fly or however the saying goes. Well, Brexit was Britain's exit from the European Union. So, We all had a vote here in 2016, well, all the citizens. I wasn't a citizen back then, so I didn't get to vote, which, you know, where my vote would have went to because I'm a fucking immigrant. So they got a choice to either vote to leave or to remain. And leave won with 52% of the votes, so this meant Britain is not part of the European Union anymore. Yay, great. It also meant everybody hated England with a passion, everybody being Northern Ireland because they voted to remain, but because they're part of the UK, now they had to stay. And also there was this whole campaign where London wanted to stay on its own, which just doesn't work because London is the capital. So life, listen, that is that in a nutshell. But what you need to know is that the campaigns, in particular the campaigns to leave the European Union, definitely emboldened those who might not have felt as brave before, just like Thomas Marr. And another thing that it allowed for, well, suddenly, if you felt depressed because you were unemployed, well, you had something to blame it on. You wanted the leave vote to overpower the remain Because this would mean that finally somebody sees this the way you do, and that is that the immigrants should go to the countries that they belong to, which means that you might actually get a job. During this time, you could really blame the EU for everything, and leaving it would solve all of your problems because it would tighten the grips on immigration. And this isn't just me pulling this out of my ass. During these campaigns, hate crime increased between 15 and 25%. So the police had their men. They sort of thought that they had the motive as well. But there was one question that remained unanswered for them, and that is... Who provided him with a gun? Before we discuss that, let's go back in time to discuss both of their backgrounds and how they finally collided. Joe first started working in politics after she graduated from Cambridge in 1995. She started her career off working for charities like Oxfam, Save the Children and NSPCC. All of those charities really had a focus on the well-being of the children, but she left charities behind to run for office in order to make the real change happen. At the time of her death, she was 41-year-old mother of two. She has been elected as the member of the parliament for Batley and Spen. During the 2015 election, she described herself as proud and humble to be Labour MP for the place where she was born. She was only MP for about a year, but she already established such a strong reputation. She spoke on behalf of the refugees, children in poverty, and children with autism. So, quite literally, she was doing what she promised she would do. She just went from doing small impact jobs surrounding children and their well-being to doing it on a bigger scale. I just had a break, not like a mental breakdown. Maya, I feel like there is a difference between break and a mental breakdown. People understand the difference. So yeah, I opened up another cider. You shouldn't have told them. It should have been like a special secret between you and the YouTube sluts. You see how that wouldn't work as a name? 
what should they be? YouTube Yankees. Like that Yankee. <laughs> God, never appropriate. Mom, if you're watching, it's a non-alcoholic beverage. It's literally right there in the screen saying like 4% alcohol. Also, like as if your mom cares. What the fuck? You're not like Christian or anything like that. My Even Christian people can drink, right? Do people who read the Bible drink? <laughs> Wait, this, is, this is gone. This has gone the certain direction. Basically, I started a new job at yet another company that I care very much about. If they are listening, I am nodding and not blinking. <laughs> and I might need to blink for help, but just because how blinking works. And it's yet another customer service job. And uh, I was answering this query about this person that really wanted the usual percentage of alcohol. So I was like, okay, listen, mate, I don't fuck with alcohol like that. <laughs> I didn't use those exact wording, otherwise I probably wouldn't have that job by now. But I was like, just tell me, what is the normal percentage of alcohol for you? Because like... You know, I'm Eastern European, like, mine, <laughs> mine ranges at, like, 40%, you know, rakia, vodka, like, let's just be honest here, so, like, just tell me how much you want us to fuck you up. So we had to, like, swap ciders, it's like a delivery company, right, so they delivered him, like, some mild-ass booze, and I was like, I understand, this is criminal, sir, this is actually criminal, so, like, Let's do the swap, but just tell me, what is normal percentage of alcohol for you? So, hey, just food for thought, just to think about something, <laughs> except from, like, Brexit and the actual crime of the day, what would be criminal for you if they delivered you, I don't know, 2% of alcohol? Does that even exist? Is that even anything? Does that do anything to anybody? Says she while she drinks something with 4%, which is mild as shit. Yeah, if my mom was watching, she would be like ringing me up, telling me like I'm an embarrassment for the family. Like, how dare I drink something that's under 40%. <laughs> Shame to my family. And now we return back to the story. Jo was active in particular on Syrian refugee issues. She was that person looking at the peaceful solutions, so she was aware that outrage is not an applicable strategy here. Rather, she was looking for a way to reconcile both British interests and capabilities with the current situation in Syria at the time. She was also the campaigner for the remaining in the EU, and even one of her last tweets shows the picture of her and her husband and children taking part in one of the campaigns for the remain side. Now, if we had a scale of good and evil on the other end of that scale, like literally falling off it, Thomas Alexander Marr was born in the Scottish town of Kilmarnock. Listen, I love you, Scots, I love your accent, I love your country, but I cannot pronounce your words for shit. He was born in 1963. He was the son of a machine operator and a factory worker. The Marr family also had a second son, Scott, but their marriage didn't last for long. So Mary and her boys moved to Birstall. And this is when it starts getting a bit weird, because Mary would remarry, and she would remarry to a black guy which also meant that Thomas would get a half-brother. And during the childhood, nobody really picked up on any issues here. This guy was an immigrant from Granada. He was also not white, meaning that his half-brother wouldn't be white. But it never seemed like Thomas would have any issues. So it didn't seem like he was 
born a white supremacist. It just seems like at a certain point, he just kind of went in that direction. And it might have been thinking about motivations even deeper than that. Because we're not really sure of the reasons of this next part, but the kids eventually, Scott and Thomas, started not living with the mom and the new boyfriend, husband, and the half-brother. But rather, only Thomas and Scott moved in with their maternal grandparents. So it's a mix of all of that. The fact that he grew up in really small, closeted cities that prevalently voted for the UK to leave the EU. Unstable family culture where the mom literally kind of just ignored these first two sons from like a first marriage and just committed to the new man and the new life and left these two to the grandparents. Also, this was during Margaret Thatcher's reign. So all of these really just provided a fertile ground for a mind like Thomas's to just flourish. These are all just speculations, by the way. The fact that his hate for his mom might have been twofold, in the fact that she abandoned him and his brother, and that she married a black man, and then sort of stayed more caring towards that half-brother... The whole thing that I just mentioned about the fertile ground for his supremacist ideologies, because Thomas Mayer didn't speak much, but not like me, where I'm actually silent and then like I sit for one day and record like the whole day and then I'm like mentally and physically exhausted because (laughs) I do not utter this many words during the week, but more in a, he was a loner, loner as fuck kind of way. And he never gave like any prison interviews, but also didn't speak much even before committing his crimes. He, as I mentioned, was living with the maternal grandparents, and when he was 33, his grandma died, leaving him that house. He didn't change anything in that house, and he just started isolating himself more and more. He would take up different gardening jobs and sort of live on benefits. But even these gardening jobs, everything in this life is weird. Even the gardening jobs would a lot of times be voluntary. So he literally just lived off benefits and then, well, didn't have to pay the rent because he had a roof above his head. And the fact that he was idle also meant that he had plenty of time to associate himself with far-right groups in the US, in the South Africa as well. And in his area, where 60% of the population voted leave, there really would not have been the shortage of opportunities to make himself known as a white supremacist, and also to sort of get in touch and support these causes from a distance. In this area, in particular Beerstal and nearby Batley, the demographic changes last time happened about a generation ago, but it still remained this fertile ground for the far-right ideologies. And for them, well, the many Muslims that lived in the area represented an actual enemy. The only insights into Thomas's mind that we really have are, well, from what is on his bookshelves, the memorabilia that he kept, the press cuttings, and also from the letters that he would write to these far-right group leaders in the area. In one such letter, he said that the white race was about to be plunged into a very bloody struggle. So he was a chill guy. <laughs> He's the guy that you do not want to like just brush against while you're waiting for like your peas at Tesco's. You're like, 
I actually cannot deal with this today. We'll be like, the white race will be plunged into a bloody struggle. Like, please, sir. I literally just wanted some, like, dose of caffeine for the day. And from these letters, it was also clear that his greatest obsession wasn't even concentrated on the other, like the Muslims, the blacks in the area. It was rather on the whites that he referred to as the collaborators. Those were the liberals, people on the left, and also the media. I wonder if he actually, like, used the internet and realized, like, what collaborations mean in this day and age. Like, you know, white people really be collaborating, sir. They're doing collabs all over the place, whether it's music, whether it's influencers. But somehow something tells me that I really doubt it. I just really doubted that this man actually had any idea of, like, the ideologies of today. He was still stuck in Second World War, which is just so sad. Just imagine out of the options to read any single book in the world, you're like, no, Nazi propaganda. This is it. This is this is the best thing that has been written in my life. Why would I why would I read anything new? Why? No, nothing has changed. And you're like, wow. Wow. So I can imagine if you already lived in this area, you would be fueled by the campaigns in it because prevalently people did choose to vote to leave the EU. So I guess those campaigns would kind of be prevailing just because of the political ideologies in the region. But now imagine when you're already so deeply immersed in this for decades. You are literally writing to these groups, you are reading about Nazis, you're reading about mass terrorists and being inspired by them. And then you see the posters for the campaigns. In particular, a lot of things were triggering during 2016, like Brexit campaigners claiming that a Remain vote would result in swarms of immigrants entering the UK, and this would in turn trigger more sexual attacks. I don't know how they connected the two either. But then, just hours before the murder of Joe Cox, UKIP with Nigel Farage posed next to the Breaking Point poster. This is next level. <laughs> like Certain things you kind of like suppress as an immigrant, and then you read about them again, and you're like, wow, <laughs> this was really this country four, five years ago, and still really is because this is still what they want. Breaking point is this poster, I'll put it on screen if you're watching on YouTube, with cues of immigrants, mostly people of color, with the inscription, we must break free of the EU and take back control. So it doesn't come as a surprise, unfortunately, that Mayor would come to view Joe Cox as one of the collaborators, a traitor to his race. Mayor was also a slow burner. It seems from everything the police has gathered that he might have fantasized about killing a so-called collaborator for more than 17 years, being inspired by David Copeland, who was a right-wing terrorist. So I didn't know a thing about this guy, and I was like, wow, I don't know about the right-wing terrorist. <laughs> How fucking weird as a person who doesn't know shit about politics in general. So naturally, I went down a rabbit hole. And did you know that over 13 days in August 1999, David Copeland planted three nail bombs around London, targeting in particular and 
calculatedly, the three areas where he knew that either people of color or gay people, so Soho, will prevalently be in. Three people died and more than 140 were injured, some of them losing limbs due to these bombs. And how do we have this information? How do we know that he was a supporter? Well, okay, another agency comes into play called National Alliance. It was a white supremacist and neo-Nazi political organization that was dissolved in 2013, but it was still operating at the time. Over the years, Marr would spend around £500 on the purchases of their magazines that were named. I just love these names just because... Like, any normal person hears just the names of these magazines, and they're like, what the actual fuck? And Mar is like, oh my god, the names were Free Speech, okay, alright, basic, Secret of the Runes, and the best one, the best one, We Get Confessions. What? What in the ambiguous life? What? We, we get confessions. Mm-hmm. So all of these magazines would get packed up carefully by other white supremacists in Virginia in the US, and then they would get sent out to people like Thomas Mayer and many others. A lot more others than you would ever want to know about. And they actually managed to trace that the package was going from the headquarters in Virginia, sort of as David Copeland was appearing in court. So they kind of knew that these beliefs were enrooted in him for at least 17 years. We have yet another quote from Thomas Marr. Listen, the quotes by Thomas Marr are rare, and uh, how do I say this? <laughs> Fucking batshit crazy. Uh, but in this rare interview that he gave as he was working as a voluntary gardener, listen, don't ask me for too many details. He gave an interview as a voluntary gardener. That's all you need to know. He kind of addressed that he was aware of his mental health issues. And he said that gardening was helping him overcome feelings of worthlessness and was better than all of the psychotherapy and medication in the world. After we reach his trial, though, this might get negated in terms of, like, him going to psychotherapy or actually suffering with a lot of mental health issues. And now we come to possibly one of the creepiest details, facts, whatever you wish to call it, in this case, except from obviously the murder and how he actually murdered Joe Cox. That just will never leave my head. Not the way I imagined it, it's not. The actual murder is not on any of the cameras that I have seen online. So, listen to this. He was a frequent visitor to the public library, of course. And something I didn't know, and uh, I'm not saying it's good to know, that that would make it sound like I might look into committing crime, but I'm saying it's a good piece of information to know, because a lot of people do go to library to search weird things that they wouldn't search on their laptops. Sometimes it is crime, sometimes it's not. That is that those records can be made available to the police. Like, you know, they can be saved up. It's, it's a fucking drive, okay? It's computer, it's internet. It, it saves. That's not the creepy part. The creepy part is why the librarians would remember him. So he would go into the library. You know how you walk into the library like, hey, I'm here, like, you know, do I need to pay up? Like, how do I get a library card? Whatever. No. Thomas would just walk in and say one word, computer. 
mislim, I would literally just call the police just on that. Just for you being a creep. Like, can you talk? Can you utter more words? It's like, computer. And just probably points. And they're like, okay, please don't kill us all. So the librarian said that he wouldn't engage in conversation. Surprise. And he also wouldn't give much eye contact. And also that they never remembered him getting a book from the library, which, I mean, I feel that would be a memorable experience because there are only certain kinds of books that this guy was interested in. The creepy facts don't stop there because let's speak about his library searches. He searched for KKK, logically, of course. He searched for SS, Israel, serial killers. And interestingly matricide. Then he read up on the death of Ian Gov, which is apparently the last member of parliament to be murdered. This guy was killed by the RIA in 1990, so not by like a lone killer. He went on a Wikipedia page to check out the former foreign secretary William Hague's profile, who also was a Yorkshire politician who, like Joe, supported the campaign to remain in the UK. Then he searched about the 22 caliber guns, in particular, asking a question, is a 22 round deadly enough to kill with one shot to a human's head? Like, come on, how more specific do you need to be? You are quite literally spelling it out. And from the library computer, he also bought for himself the Second World War dagger, the one that he used to stab Joe. Once he purchased the gun, he also searched about, like, well, how to use that particular gun, and then searched liver and spinal column, making me think, well, he probably searched, like, what kind of damage this gun would do, and then further, like, what organs and parts of the body he should aim for, like, the most impact, most effect. It's creepy all the way. But a lot of people, and the prosecution in particular, will focus on the fact that he searched for matricide. Not to flex like my criminal minds card on you, but I personally feel this might have had something to do with one of the two things. The one that is more probable is that he possibly wanted to kill Joe in a way that he couldn't get rid of his mother and because of the hatred that he felt towards his mother. The other less probable one that doesn't make much sense, well, Joe was a mother, so he might have looked into how this would affect her children. I doubt it because, well, he made very specific searches in the past and also here, you know, he is not killing his own mother. So why search for matricide to sort of check those searches? And also he is a freaking psychopath, like he doesn't really care how this would affect the rest of her family. And other people that hang on to this particular theory, the one that he actually wanted to kill his own mom point out that Thomas Marr actually reloaded his gun after leaving the scene of the crime, as if he was just to shoot her yet again had he realized that maybe she's giving signs of life. The night before killing Joe, he visited a treatment center in the same town seeking help for depression, and he was told to return the next day for an appointment. After his arrest, though, he will get examined by a psychiatrist, and this person found absolutely no evidence that his mental health was so affected that he cannot be held responsible for his conduct. 
So let's speak a bit about his trial. Jurors were shown the CCTV footage that I played at the beginning of this video, where he was walking along the road, targeting the vehicle, and then striking as soon as Joe went out. Thomas actually denied murder, grievous bodily harm with intent, possession of a firearm with intent to commit that murder. Literally, he denied every single thing, like, mate... It's clearly you, what you think a baseball cap is going to hide your identity. And then, when he actually had to stand up and confirm his name in the magistrate's court, he said, he said, my name is deaf to traitors, freedom for Britain. And his lawyers, they're like, what the fuck? They were like, we're, we're sorry, your honor. We literally did not have an idea that he's going to say this. Like, shut the fuck up, Thomas. Like, we're literally trying to defend your ass. Just say your name. Witnesses during his trial testified, including Kenneth, including the 77-year-old minor, and also the guy from the cafe that rang the police. And, well, they would testify that he would scream, this is Britain, keep Britain independent, put Britain first. To which I put in the script, imagine, just for a second, during the process of a killing, you are talking about how Britain is great. And, like, you are the perpetrator, right? <laughs> You don't have a gun to your head. Nobody's making you say these things. Like, just for a second. I, I cannot picture it. I don't know about you, but I'm like, please, what? What do you mean I'm killing in the name of Britain? Like, I wouldn't kill in the name of my own country, let alone like this one one. <laughs> So after everything, the judge called him a coward. He said that it's evident from his internet searches that he was inspired not by the love of his country or the fellow citizens, but by the admiration for Nazis and similar anti-democratic white supremacists. I just love this next quote because the judge said, our parents' generation made huge sacrifices to defeat those ideas and values in the Second World War. What you did betrays those sacrifices. Like, you are a fucking outdated moron. And the judge added to that that by not having the courage to admit to the crime, he also forced the prosecution to prove their case in the detail, which deliberately increased the anguish of the victim's family. Because had he pled guilty, this trial probably would have never happened. He could have spared the family the whole affair. But of course, that was not a point. So on 23rd of November 2016, the jury took about 90 minutes to convict him of murder, grievous bodily harm against Bernard, possession of a firearm with intent, and possession of a dagger. He got a whole life term and will never be eligible for parole. One of the many mysteries in this case still remains, and I have tried to find as many articles, some of them actually dating from 2020, and that is the mystery of the gun. So in summary, from everything that I have found, this was actually a German gun. Like, if you look at it, it doesn't look just like any gun you can find, like, on the street, okay? I mean, kind of like US, speaking US terms, not like really UK terms here. But it's this 22-bolt action rifle, and most of the barrel of the gun has also been removed. And this gun was actually stolen from the sports utility vehicle in Keeley or Cayley in August 2015, but even from this article that I have read from 2020, the detectives still have no idea how it fell into Thomas's hands. 
And apparently during the investigation, what came to light was that Thomas only sent three text messages in the past three years. Just how sad. Just his whole miserable life. Like his punishment would be literally just living with his thoughts. I mean, I'm glad that he's in prison, but just living day to day with that mindset is just literally a punishment in itself. So, of course, this meant that they had no clue how this man got that gun. And of course, the police like hasn't given up on it. But, you know, they said that the investigation will be revisited if further information comes to light. So if somebody wants to contact the police about the gun and how the fuck it reached Thomas, sure, be my guest. As you plan to do that, let's discuss the motives behind the attack. Thomas here was buying that the liberal, the left-wing political viewpoints were the cause of all of the world's problems. And he was wrong because the cause of all of the world's problems is not having enough pizza to supply the whole world, goddammit. Okay, Maya, calm it. He was what can be defined as a lone wolf terrorist. And usually these people are motivated by expressed prejudice. They dehumanize the others to a greater extent. They're higher on a dark triad traits, talking about psychopathy, antisocial disorder, lack of empathy. And they also report behaving aggressively towards others. The psychologists who have studied people responsible for the acts of lone wolf terrorism concluded that they actually identify so strongly with the group that they don't necessarily have much contact with, that they are prepared to make considerable sacrifices for what they see as the good of the group. And as such, they would have positive identification with this group combined with the perception that this group is being victimized and is being victimized by these collaborators who are perpetrating the injustice. And experts also said that unfortunately, something like lone wolf terrorism is extremely hard to detect and it's even harder to prevent them from inciting violence. So let's focus on Joe to conclude this episode and really her legacy. In July 2016, organizers of the Tolpadal Martyrs Festival formed a trade union, dedicated the year's event to her memory. In August, cyclists took part in the Joe Cox Way, which was what they named a five-day, 260-mile cycle ride from West Yorkshire to Westminster. And they organized this ride in order to raise money for the charities that Joe would have supported. At its 2016 party conference in Liverpool, Labour Party launched the Joe Cox Women in Leadership Programme, which is a mentoring scheme designed to help women into leadership roles. There is a square in Brussels that is named after her. MPs and musicians collaborated on a version of the Rolling Stones song, You Can't Always Get What You Want, in order to release it as a charity single in her memory and to raise funds for the launch of her foundation. Joe's sister actually continued in her steps and has been chosen as the Labour candidate in the constituency that Joe Cox once represented. I think this is this year. Like, I think this is like latest news from about a month ago. But I think really her husband's words show how we should really be honoring Joe. The best way to honor her is for all of us, no matter our views, to stand up for what we believe in passionately and with determination, but never to demonize the other side and always hold on to what we have in common. 
Mar might have hoped to ignite the racial war, but it backfired. His crime has only proven that radicalization does not bring people together. Not a single person was inspired by the lone wolf ideology, while the values Joe stood for prevail in the minds of the nation. Joe Cox died by the hand of the ideology she stood against. In the profession that is crammed with bad apples, Joe was one of the few good ones. If we can learn one thing from Joe, it is that once you let the life sticking by your values, those values transcend beyond it. And whilst we celebrate our diversity, the thing that surprises me time and time again as I travel around the constituency is that we are far more united and have far more in common than that which divides us. Keep making the world a better place, one motive at a time. And I will be seeing you later this week.